The content that's explicit will not come with a warning except for this. So bear in mind what I am saying. This show is explicit content. It's Tuesday, July 3rd, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And I did not watch that Michael Cohen interview. From what I gather, it was exactly what I thought it would be. It was vague. It was substance-free. It was an attempt by one man who was not allowed to personally contact another man but he could use a third man with an even better head of hair than the first two men as a medium for communication. As kids, we had cans on a string. In the aughts, we all had AOL Messenger. Michael Cohen had George Stephanopoulos to get his message across. Will it work? Not the right question. The right question is, where else is this going on? How much of what we're seeing today is just using an interview to send a different, slightly coded message? Maybe this guy, Brandon Straka. I became a liberal because I felt I'd found a tribe whose values aligned with my own. Maybe he invented the walk away hashtag and booked his guest slot on Tucker. I decided that once and for all, I was going to sit down and write the definitive manifesto about everything that's wrong with liberalism, everything that's wrong with the Democratic Party, and put it in a video and just rip the Band-Aid off and stick it out there. Maybe all of that was just a huge ploy to meet Milo Yiannopoulos. And maybe this, Charles Payne hosting a segment on the Fox Business News, where it was interviewing Candace Owens, who was a spokesperson for the conservative group Turning Point USA, maybe they were talking about the walkaway hashtag not to actually try to convince anyone in the audience who was actually watching. Maybe they all just had an audience of one, one Kanye West. You take a considerable amount of, of backlash if you're if part of any sort of special interest group that is expected to be Democrat, then people are shocked when you're not a Democrat. If you're a black person and you're not a Democrat, people are shocked. If you're Hispanic and you're not a Democrat, people are shocked. And it takes a certain amount of courage to quote hashtag walk away. Uh, you know, it definitely does. And I think what we can contribute this to is social media. Yes, I would say you can, in fact, contribute it or maybe even attribute it to social media, a message that starts with a hashtag possibly social media played a part in that. Otherwise, it would just be a weird symbol cluttering up your really brilliant message. It is for this exact reason that the slogan during the 60s was make love, not war. And it wasn't ampersand, make love, backslash, not war. Didn't fly. Oh, by the way, just wanting to note, Charles Payne saying, if you're a special interest group, if you're black or Hispanic, Charles Payne is black. I do not know if that is a totally normal way for an African-American to identify with a group that they're part of. I'm just a special interest. I hope Kanye appreciates all that. And finally, there is this guy, this fellow, who we thought was looking for the camera as a means of broadcasting to all of North Dakota and, of course, far beyond. But listen to this feller and ponder along with me. Maybe this is less a piece of campaigning and more a targeted message. Canadian wheat markets consistently discriminate against the United States wheat by grading it as feed. Do you know what that means? They know what it means. I don't know what the hell it means. I just know it's a bad deal. But who is the audience? Who could this possibly be appealing to? Is it a teach me Ivanka, you're smart, or is it, smile upon me, Wilbur Ross? I am a real capitalist too. Or maybe, just maybe, 
that this message is going out across the ages to a young boy. He's from Queens, but he's now miles away in a military school and he wants his daddy to know he's good enough. And that boy's name is, well, it's also Kanye West. It doesn't make sense, just like Canadian weed. On the show today, I spiel about a judge who just might be appointed to the highest court and went over her testimony to be seated on a slightly lower court, but an important court. But first, Willa Paskin, host of the Slate program Decoder Ring, dropped by, inspired by episode two of D-Ring. That's what we call it around the office, D-Ring. We asked fans. They're kind of fanatic. So just how much does a creator owe them? The decoder ring is by now an old technology that was given to kids as they listened to their radio serials, and it would help them decode hidden messages. It really was one of the most uh, insidious but also brilliant pieces of advertising because it made the recipient a willing participant as they decoded messages like famously in A Christmas Story, drink more Ovaltine. Now, decoder ring is something else. It is, uh, you know, insidious and brilliant. Willa Paskin of Slate is doing this ongoing series where she breaks down a piece of culture every month, and I wanted to talk to her about what are the implications of episode number two. Willa, how are you? Thanks for coming in. Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Now, episode two... And I actually just want to talk about one part of the episode, which wasn't the main thrust, but give us an overview. It's about the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock Holmes show. Yeah, we started this episode sort of um, trying to figure out why people care so much about fictional romances. And then we just fell down this rabbit hole about the fan community around this one show, the BBC's Sherlock, um, starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman, and this sort of crazy, um, wild, and very involved theory about what was going to happen on the show. Rooting for couples, wanting them to get together, this is called shipping, which is short for relationshiping. If you've ever wanted two people on a TV show to smooch, you've shipped them. But shipping can be much more purposeful and intense than that. I barely was into, like, the Draco Snape thing. That was, like, a very short thing. And the Draco Harry then, like, took over my life. So when I was in Buffy fandom, I the only thing I cared about was Rupert Giles. Star Wars, Kylux is, a, oh my god, Armitage Hux. Kylo Ren. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Clint, like Hawkeye, and Coulson, like the S.H.I.E.L.D. guy. Jane Austen. Lydia eloping with Wickham and running off to Las Vegas. Poe and Kylo Ren. It's not my favorite. Darcy and Bingley. I have seen that. Plants. Yeah, the Voltron ship. Harry Voldemort. So it is a rabbit hole, and what happened is fans ran away with themselves thinking that these two famous literary characters would in fact have a romance, a romance that was perhaps how you read into it, hinted at. It was pretty strongly hinted at. The creators of the show definitely put the subtext out there. But man, did the fans, I think, uh, get ahead of themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think um, one thing about this episode is that it was about a specific fan community around Sherlock. And there's lots of different kinds of fan communities. And I think when we tend to think of fans, we sort of think of fanboys. Like, that's the first thing that pops into our mind. But a lot of these communities that are um, built especially around fan fiction are actually largely female. 
And this is one of those communities. And I think that the behavior that you see in just around Sherlock is not only around Sherlock. It's around a lot of other shows. And also part of the sort of like fun of being in the fandom for shows like this is that you sort of are allowed to get carried away. The show is truly just the starting off point. And that's why sometimes some of the fan communities are built around things that are actually not that good. And almost like it's almost better when it's not that good because right. then there's like you have more license and more freedom to just yeah, go wherever you we, want. Let's say we, we destroy the main text. Big deal. It's small wonder. Who gives a damn? Or <laughs> My Little Pony, which is a real thing, actually. So this is what I wanted to talk about. Not so much the institution of fan communities or fanfic, which I think is fine if you want to – more than fine. I think it's great if you want to use Star Trek as an ur text and write what you know is fiction about Spock and – and uh, Kirk becoming a couple. Fantastic. Just like Shakespeare used texts before him. I don't think creators should come in saying, don't do that, don't be creative with this work that inspired you. It's when you expect the original work to respond to that or to change because that's what you want it to change. I have a big problem with that, but I wanted to ask you what you think of that. I don't think there's just one answer. So like in the case of this show, in Sherlock, which I we've spent we've like I've spent a lot of time thinking about and had not previously. I'm of two minds because I think that on the one hand, like you are the author. You don't need like it seems so strange to me. Who's the you? The so, fan? Like you the mean? fan. Okay. It seems so strange to me that you would have expended all this imagination on a world that's like just yours. I mean, that's based on something, but you've made it totally your own. And then to turn around and be like, but we need you to co-sign our view of this. Like, that seems like a weird move. But then on the other hand, I think they also really did think that the creators had, like, egged them on in in a way that, like, crossed a line. This is the big issue I wanted to ask you about. Do you think creators really owe anything to the audience other than creating a show that's popular enough to keep going. I'm of just two minds a little bit because on the one hand, I think, yes, of course, the creators of a show don't owe us anything. And then on the other hand, I'm so over this idea of like creators of a show as like so brilliant all the time. We have to separate those things. Like it's true. You should do whatever you want. But let's also acknowledge like you make dumb mistakes all the time or like the thing you you wanted to do with your show isn't always great, isn't always the best choice. Here's another way to look at it besides the frame of artists listening to fans. It's this. The receivers of the show want tension to be resolved. That's the nature of man. The creators of a work of art want to create tension. And it really should be up to them when to resolve the tension. Yeah. And in cases when... It is up to them. Can you think of a famous show where the tension was resolved, like a relationship yeah, of tension... Course. For the and it and the show benefited. Oh no! I mean, I was gonna say, of course not. I never want the tension to be resolved. I mean, that like but fans moon- always clamor for the tension to be resolved. Yay, Rachel and Ross got together. Yay, uh, but, Diane but and it is also, Sam did. It is also it's always worse. But afterwards. it is also true that you can't draw it out forever because then you are just drawing it out right. to t- to string fans along. It's right. not what's best for the show. Well, then it becomes either. lost if you, if there's no right. end game. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so in some ways, TV's worse than a movie because movies can it's an hour and a half and yes. you can take it, but with a TV show, you want moonlighting to resolve the well, tension, and then it sucks. Well, it's different. It's different in a thing that has an ending. Yeah. If something has an ending, you can write to that ending. Yeah. I guess people don't realize that their TV show, this is a show about the tension between two main characters, as opposed to this is a show about my experience feeling uncomfortable with that tension. No, I think people find that tension delicious, but they like... But they always want to resolve it. Of course they do, because they want the, to get to the part where they smooch. Yeah. 
which is like solving the mystery. I don't know. Is is a show a romantic or a romantic comedy? Is that like a mystery show or like a Lost where the creators of the show are never going to resolve the mystery? I mean, I actually never th- thought about it in this quite this way, but I think that in romances, like getting together functions like finding out who the killer is. Yeah, yeah. It's like the same. Yeah, but but um, if you do, if you're working in the genre of mystery, you know you have to resolve it. Like the creators of Lost, knew and I they think have that to. people who are doing ro- romantic comedies know they have to resolve it too. If you make Moonlighting, mm-hmm. you think they they always knew they they had characters, they had chemistry, they had a flirtation. They said, you know, by episode four, we have to ha- marry these kids off, and they well, have they to be- didn't marry them off, but they're like yeah. they're going to have to. Th- this is the show. Is like yeah. this rapport, right? But the rapport rested on the fact that they didn't get together. Maybe right. shipping's always a bad idea. I've always like root for couples to get together when I'm watching something, but yeah. my I've never written fan. I've never been in fandom. Like that's I'm a critic. You know what I mean? My yes. my wish is not to like write fiction about. I just want to like think about them a little bit. What else? Uh, what makes a good Dakota Ring episode? You know, we're still figuring it out. We only had three, but we basically are. We basically like have a question, like what happened to the laugh track or um, the John Locke conspiracy, and then our third episode is about clowns about. Why did clowns get creepy? But then underneath that is, like, our real question. Yeah. What's the real question underneath? um, We're like, there's a hooky question, but then there's actually something else underneath it. Which is like, so what happened to the laugh track? It was really like, how does something that we used to love become something so annoying? Like, what what is it about? Uh, is, like, the more actual question. And so we're trying to figure that out. This last episode we just did, this is the first one that we've done, that was about a question that, like, tons of people have asked before. Mm-hmm. And so it'll be interesting to see, like, if we were, like, I mean, I think we really tried to add something to that conversation and people will think that that we did. And if that's more satisfying, people are less satisfying. I mean, we're, you know, we're, like, we're just... We're settling a question that exists in the culture. Or but, just, like, you know, not settling it, but, like, opening a question that people... It don't, was, don't, don't feel that you can't say you're settling it. You're a critic. You're weighing in. And when people come I out have, the other no end... No one ever should think about scary clowns after we're done because we just solved listen, it. I've come to this way of thinking by listening to Revisionist History. There is nothing wrong with having a podcast that says, this is my thesis. Right? And... So far, we have done one kind of podcast, which is people talking. They give you their thesis all the time. You listen to the gist. You know what I think. And then there's this other kind of podcast, which is a documentary, which is pretty afraid to state its thesis because, you know, it comes from NPR or whatever, and it's all about reporting. I like the podcast that's more like a critical essay in Slater, The New Yorker, where you're like, I have this thesis, and then here's my thesis. Feel free to disagree. Maybe we'll have episodes in between the episodes where we talk yeah. about the disagreement. So, yes, we do. I mean, we're, we have theses. Good, good. Our thesis is that scary clowns and happy clowns are not that different. They're, they just went wrong. There was just one No, but it's not. It's teens, that scary clowns. You're wrong. It's, it's actually. School. It's that scary clowns are not that scary. That's scary true. clowns are up to good, too. That's the, and are funny. Anyway, you'll have to listen. John Wayne Gacy make an opinion? <laughs> John Wayne Gacy does make a cameo, yeah. but he's um he's not even a clown. He no. just he's a murderer who occasionally dressed up as a clown, having nothing to do with him being a murderer. But he right. did really make they things did, hard. He did both things in life, at, he but did never make, at the same time. And he did make things very know. hard for clowns. It's yeah, true. yeah. Willa Paskin is the host of Dakota Ring New Slate podcasts, and she believes that uh, not all auteurs are geniuses, but a lot of people <laughs> in the audience need to pipe down. Am I, am I getting that right? Is that your thesis? I, I don't say a lot. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay. That's my thesis, Mike. <laughs> Willa's thesis. Willa, a woman with a thesis and a podcast. Thank you, Willa. Thank you. Thank you. 
And now the spiel. Trump has apparently narrowed his list of Supreme Court nominees to a select few. They must be smart. They must be young. They must be conservative. And because this Trump we're talking about, he wants someone who he can think of as judicial, seeming judicial. And I think Amy Coney Barrett serves all those roles. She is an accomplished Notre Dame law professor, a true scholar. She's attractive. Oh, calling me a sexist? No, 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 no. I'm just saying that she's attractive because that's important to Trump. He really doesn't like putting unattractive people on TV. And by attractive, I don't just mean her appearance. It's how she presents. She has this large, lovely-seeming family, seven children, four girls, three boys, five are white, two are black. They adopted those kids from Haiti. The youngest kid has special needs. And young, she's so young. Do you want to know how young she is? She's a month younger than me. I know, young. Cody Barrett was before the Senate last year in the process of getting approved to be on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. There was a moment or two of that hearing that made news when people made a clamor about questions posed by Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois and Dianne Feinstein of California. They said those Democratic senators were being anti-Catholic. Here is Fox's Tucker Carlson talking to committee member and Republican senator from Utah, Mike Lee, about that. Senator, that looked pretty close to a religious test to me. It certainly felt that way to me, Tucker. And as a religious minority myself, I'm someone whose ears perk up very quickly when I start hearing questions into someone's religious belief and saying that they are of concern to my colleagues. Look, look, this was settled in 1787. This was part of the original Constitution, pre-Bill of Rights. Uh, We cannot have religious tests that, that determine someone's qualifications or lack thereof to serve in federal office. There were similar writings like John Cass in the Chicago Tribune. He started off his column by saying there's something refreshingly honest about those Democrats revealing their bigotry in the halls of the United States Senate. Democratic U.S. Senators Dick Durbin and Dianne Feinstein are applying a religious test to public office. Now, what you wouldn't know from the Tucker segment or that description I just read, in fact, how it was reported in most Christian media, is that there was a reason they were asking her about Catholicism. It wasn't just random. It was about an article that Amy Coney Barrett wrote about judges recusing themselves because of their religion. And indeed, when pressed on that issue, here's what Coney Barrett said. But I would say that I would, if I were being considered for a trial court, I would recuse myself and not actually enter the order of execution. That was the only conclusion the article reached, and I would stand by that today. So, questioning, framing the question, going two or three times, you got an answer. You went around the pro forma assertions, of course, I'm going to follow the law and an appellate judge. They're not in the same position as trial judges. They're not in the same position as Supreme Court justices. They can only follow the law. We got all that, but because of good questions, we learned that Coney Barrett defines her Catholicism as such that she personally would not issue an order of execution. I am glad to know that. It fleshes out her opinions on jurisprudence. It tells us the kind of person that will be sitting in judgment. That is all to the benefit of the public. But we didn't learn much else about her. When the senators turned to the issue of Roe versus Wade or same-sex marriage, we got no such declaration approaching anything close to her personal beliefs. I mean, I think one of the great traditions in this country is that judges participate in the law Um, participate in the decision of cases and rule even when they disagree with the outcome. And I think 
actually, when they, especially when they disagree with outcome, think of a judge who knows a defendant to be guilty because of suppressed evidence. Um, but that judge will still fairly ensure the rights of every litigant, which is why I think, you know, I, why I keep saying again and again that any personal view would be irrelevant to that because... I understand that. That was Senator Dick Durbin. What he's about to do is sum up the standard line that all the judges take. The whole, my job is not to listen to my personal beliefs. It's to be a baseball umpire or a proxy for the law itself, a a law book with feet and arms and maybe a robe. Maybe that robe will have some pieces of flair on it. But my decision-making will not at all be affected by my beliefs. Durbin said it better than I'm saying. I can't tell you how many nominees have been before us in this panel for for the bench and virtually all say the same. I'm following the precedent. I'm following the law. I'm following the Constitution. Don't worry a thing about who I am, how I was raised, what my religion is, what my life experiences have been. Put it all aside. I don't believe that for a second. I don't think cases reach your level, at circuit level, that are that clear. Maybe some are, but few. You're really called on to judge cases that are a close call. And some of them involve interpretations of what did that word mean in that Supreme Court decision? What did that word mean in the law? What was Congress trying to do? And I don't think you can divorce yourself from life's reality at that point. Well argued, but of course, Coney Barrett wasn't foolish enough to change her tact. And it worked out for her. Spoiler alert, she got confirmed. But you did have a record of the person, the human being walking around, not the perfect judicial robot, the human being opining about things like religion and the law and stare decisis and if Roe was super precedent, which the answer, according to her, is depends on how you define super precedent. And she did the job she had to do to move on and advance. But then, late in the hearing, Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse just kind of cracked. The um, process here is just becoming increasingly preposterous. The president has said he has a litmus test, the senator argued. Dark money funders take out ads in support of the nominees, the very nominees who are there before the Senate committee, nominees who adhere and pass those litmus tests that he admits exist. So are those dark money ads? Is that just all a waste of money, Sheldon Whitehouse was wondering? He seemed to despair. We get answers that are hopeless in terms of trying to give us any sense of what those effects will be. You know, Senator Blumenthal has argued in front of the Supreme Court multiple occasions. Before I got here, I used to practice appellate law more than any other kind. I was the attorney general and U.S. attorney for my state. I've argued in the Supreme Court. I've argued in the First Circuit over and over again. I've argued before our state Supreme Court To sit here and pretend that there is no role for people's personal or private views or their social views when they go to the court is just, I mean, it's so preposterous as to be silly. The senator went on for a while, no question, all creed occur, and he ended with... These hearings are... What word do you think he's going to land on? I think at some level... um, preposterous to go back to my original word. Now, just to give equal time to the Republicans on committee, because I realized I didn't play any Republicans, here was a question from Ted Cruz. Um, why do you think it was that you, you received those awards? 
gosh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I... President Trump has said he'll put forward a candidate who passes his litmus test, and then that candidate will place his or her hand in a Bible and swear that they have discussed no such matter with the president. They've never divulged his or her private thoughts on these public matters, and then they will spend some time crafting answers that might rely on analogies. Sam Alito invented the umpire. Maybe they'll rely on charm. Gorsuch was charming. Maybe they'll take some umbrage. It is the Trump era. But whatever it takes to tap dance around the very real questions, you believe these things, don't you? And this will dictate how you will rule. And once they do that, and once they get confirmed, they will either explicitly or little by little take away abortion rights, uh, much to the ire of the majority of Americans and, I got to say, in violation of a fair reading of constitutional law. And when that happens, it will be the system working as it was set up to work. What is the word for that? Preposterous. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced The Gist. They are spending their fourth wandering around Thai caves with gel packs in case they encounter any soccer teams. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He always spends his fourth going to Coney Island to watch the famous gel pack eating contest. Thanks to our Slate Plus listeners who help support the show. If you are not a member, learn more about the many gel pack-tacular benefits of membership at slate.com slash gist plus. The gist. You know, once John Locke gets going, what's next? Shaggy Scoob, and then maybe finally the only TV relationship I've ever shipped was the Sunday NFL Game of the Week crew. Yeah, Kenny Moose and Goose. Kenny Moose and Goose. And thanks for listening.